I would like, uh, if I may, to take you on a strange journey. To reverence the music and the drama and the rituals of the old gods. To love nature and to fear it. And to rely on it and to appease it when necessary. There was magic then. Nobility and unimaginable cruelty. You will simply never understand the true nature of sacrifice. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it do something extraordinary. In nomine Dei Nostri Satanas Luciferi Welcome to another Greater Magic episode. In this episode, I'm being joined by two very distinguished gentlemen, and I am really, truly honored to have both of them with me. First, Magus Peter H. Gilmore, High Priest of the Church of Satan and author of the Satanic Scriptures. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you guys doing today? I'm very, very good. And on that note, let me introduce the second guest, Magister Michael Rose, uh, obviously Magister in the Church of Satan and author of Infernalia. Am I saying that right, Magister Rose? Yes, okay. that's correct. How are you today? Oh, I'm fine. This is very exciting for me and the listeners as this is the first time that you and I have spoken. So I'm, I'm very honored. Thank you so much for taking time, both of you, for taking time out of your lives and joining us for this very special Nine Cents episode. My pleasure. Oh, you are most welcome. Wonderful. Well, just to give a little bit of a rundown on how this episode is going to work for the audience, we're going to start uh, briefly dusting over greater magic. Now, this is a subject that is not new to anyone, one, that's a Satanist, but two, that listens to this podcast, as we've had a number of greater magic episodes in the past. So we're not going to spend a lot of time on the nuts and bolts, as it were. What we're going to be talking about primarily in this episode is customizing the existing satanic rituals and or ceremonies and creating your own. And the reason why I reached out to these two distinguished gentlemen is because they have done just that. They have both written their own rituals and or ceremonies. And I've found it just obvious that I should reach out to them and they should be the ones to speak to the subject and answer any listener questions. And when we're finished talking about it, I reached out to you, the audience, and asked you to come up with a, a number of questions to ask these gentlemen, and you have done so in spades. So we will be addressing those at the tail end of the show, so stick around for that. Um, it's always interesting getting uh, other people, rather than my ranting and raving about your opinion, your uh, your questions, uh, to get uh, some other people on here and uh, address those as well. And they're all pretty appropriate to the subject, so it works out perfectly. Uh, so without any further ado, let's go ahead and uh, dive into this. Um, Megas Gilmore, maybe we'll, we'll start off with you here. Let's talk a little bit about the satanic ritual. And I was wondering if you could... Um, I don't know, maybe give us a brief definition and maybe a little compare and contrast of what makes a satanic ritual different from other rituals uh, that you may find in other uh, religious systems. Essentially, a satanic ritual is meant as a form of self-transformational psychodrama. It's a way of using your emotions uh, to work them up to a fever pitch and release any kind of emotional blockage that might be hindering you from pursuing any kind of other things in your life that you're doing. 
This is done in what Anton LaVey defined as an intellectual decompression chamber. The idea of ritual as a form of controlled self-delusion. <laughs> that you basically are working in something that is a setup that you create as a time out of time, essentially. You formally have a ringing of the bell and, and various invocations to bring you out of your regular mundane life and into a ritual chamber, whether it be actually a room that's set up as a chamber or simply a mental space. One can, can do rituals in your mind without having to even dress or have any of the equipment to do these things. But it's really a way of approaching a sleight of mind, of dealing with your feelings and your thinkings, leaving most of your thinking behind. You should have thought this out before you go into a ritual and then have this great emotional experience uh, using texts, music, imagery, scents, anything that might get you going uh, to deal with uh, this cathartic experience. And then you end it. You sort of let it go. And then finally, when you ring the bell nine times at the end and say the so it is done traditional phrase, it is done. You've worked these things out of your system. You're not going to dwell on them. You're not going to go back to them like a, an aching tooth and poke on them. It's not meant as something that you do over and over and over again for this for one point. You, you do it and release it. And uh, it's a very powerful experience when done properly. Now, other religions tend to have ceremony more than ritual. And that would mean that they are basically... Uh, illustrative of principles. Uh, they're a form of worship, of uh, trying to ask some, what we would say is a non-existent entity, for some kind of assistance, or simply to give adoration to something that isn't really there. Uh, but it's not meant to be an operative magical idea, as most rituals are. Uh, for the Satanists, since we are the center of our own universes, we are trying to move the universe according to our will. And that's a very different idea from most religions begging some entity for some sort of, you know, crumbs from their table to help their, make their lives better. Yeah, it, it always amazes me the, the difference and the, the theatricality of it is similar, but the intent, uh, the end results are so dramatically different uh, between other religions and Satanism when it comes to, to ritualizing. Um, Magister Rose, there's also a lot of examples of satanic ceremonies. Uh, I mean, there's the satanic rituals that was put out that was just filled virtually all completely with ceremonies. So would you be able to speak to the difference between a satanic ritual and a satanic ceremony? Well, to my uh, way of thinking, uh, satanic ceremonies are means of just acknowledging some aspect of nature that find, you find interesting or worthy of acknowledgement in some way. Uh, you know, my, my Rites of Spring was, was just exactly that. Uh, an acknowledgement of, you know, the, the force of spring, you know, dispelling the death of winter and all of this, uh, the renewal of everything. Uh, it's not so much immediately about something that you want, which is more what the ritual is about, although that can tie into it as well. Uh, it's a little more elaborate, a little more play acted, a little more uh, 
just a little more everything. Uh, whereas, at least to my mind, ritual is very much to the point. What I always loved about the difference in, in the way that I saw it was ritual is very much reactionary to your life. Um, it's something that, that you will do because you want to get past or achieve something. Whereas, you know, you have your ceremonies, which just as you said, you're acknowledging something that already is or was, and you're celebrating that, whatever that is. And I'm so happy that you brought up Rites of Spring because I'm hoping we can talk about that in a little bit here in our, near the end of our discussion, because I thought that was a really, really wonderful uh, ceremony that you created. Um, let me ask this uh, really quickly of you, uh, Magister Rose. Why Why would a Satanist ritualize? Why would we need to ritualize rather than just, I suppose, dealing with life the way that everyone else does? I mean, what are the benefits? Well, everyone, I think, ritualizes in some way. We just do it in a more conscious way. I mean, it's... Uh, if you watch someone long enough, even if they swear that they're complete, you know, materialistic atheists, there's, there's little things that you will notice that are almost a subconscious ritual with them. Whereas with us, we just go ahead and do it and be done with it. And uh, this allows us to, to move on. We're, we're more self-aware in many ways than a lot of people. Mm -hmm. uh, we acknowledge what we are and we know that ritualistic behaviors are part of what the human animal is and so we go ahead and use it in a way that it is most beneficial to us and i think it is important to note and as um magus gilmore had, had said when he was addressing and comparing and contrasting satanic ritual with other rituals in other religions that you know, when we when we talk about uh, I'm sorry, a ritual, there is this image of the dark room with the candles and the uh, altar, uh, nude, it, all the better, um, and you know, calling out, having all these uh, artifacts around you that you're using throughout. But it is important because, as, as uh, again, uh, Megas Gilmore said, that y you could actually do this all in your imagination, and you don't need this this huge theatrical setup. So, you know, when we think of uh, reasons that we ritualize, uh, maybe, you know, for me, uh, one of my rituals that I think brings a lot of joy in my life that, that isn't a formal thing in any way at all is waking up early, uh, exercising, and then, you know, in turn, waking up my family with my dog padding behind by my heels every morning. And that, that's just something that I do every day. And if I don't do it, I feel off. And, you know, it's a form of ritual that, is, is just helps set my mind at ease and puts me in a good place for the day. Um, with that in mind, do either of you have any sort of daily rituals that, that you could, you could, you know, put into that type of a context? I don't really do anything that specific uh, that I would say my life would be this rote and that I would do something over and over again. Uh, yeah. Really, when I wake up, it, it depends on what's on my mind because my brain tends to be working on all kinds of things while I'm asleep and suddenly something seizes me and I either have to write something or, or deal with something. Uh, it's usually writing something. So uh, <laughs> I have to get down and, and get my ideas downloaded in a certain form. 
but uh, nothing so specific as, as, as uh, you know, I do this, I do that. Uh, you know, I get breakfast ready. Yeah, that. Yeah. But, you know, to me, I don't even feel that ritualistic that it's it's so common because I actually vary how I do that uh, frequently enough. I don't do it so specifically the same. So I, I like the the idea of variety and not sort of putting myself in uh, <laughs> what I might consider a rut. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I can't say that uh, that I have any daily rituals either. It's just... Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just starting to think I'm just OCD. <laughs> oh, yes. that, that's a not even a ritual at all. <laughs> there you go. Now it's out. All right. <laughs> I've discovered the truth. Um, well, May- Megas Gilmore, let me ask you this. Uh, where do the three rituals in the Satanic Bible come from? And I, and I guess to follow that up, uh, why are there only three? Well, here's just something to think about. You know, I spent a good deal of time with Anton LaVey in the final years of his life. And uh, he's the author of those. He created those three rituals. And he meant them as a basic, almost like training wheels uh, for the beginning ritual magician. Uh, They were trying to cover enough ground so that most emotions could be tweaked in one direction or another uh, by those specific rites. Uh, You know, a lust ritual, well, everybody is interested in lust. We're human beings. Lust is built in. So that Mm -hmm. covers a lot of ground. It doesn't matter what your orientation is. You can do a lust ritual. And you're probably doing something along those lines frequently enough anyway. Uh, it's just more of a creative way of dealing with those issues. And then uh, people get angry all the time uh, when people are frustrating them. Uh, that is a common human experience. When you could get cut off by some idiot in traffic and you're pissed off at them. Or somebody can really be setting themselves up to be an adversary from you in a work position. Or, you know, if you're in school, you've got a fellow student or even a professor or teacher who might not like you and might have it in for you on some level. So anger can be there uh, as a regular presence for a lot of people, uh, you know, that's brought in by people that is beyond their control. They don't ask for it necessarily, but it comes into your life. So having a destruction ritual to clear out that anger from you, so because it's a toxic feeling to be angry all the time. You don't want to hold that in. You want to let that go. And then uh, the compassion ritual is the broad one. That was sort of the catch-all because that was meant as a way of having compassion for yourself or others. Well-wishing, blessing, uh, it's all that kind of format. Uh, And you can really stretch the compassion to approach a lot of different things. Uh, The people that you cherish, you can do a compassion ritual for them. And, uh, And of course... For the Satanists, naturally, charity begins at home since we are a self-centered religion. So uh, you can be using anything that you feel frustrated about there, anything that you want, any way to to bump yourself up. The compassion ritual works for that. But interestingly, when I knew Anton LaVey, he had really moved away from doing formal rituals almost entirely. It was something that was a rarity for him. And the, the times that we went into the ritual chamber did something that was usually kind of monumental. It was to set something up very specific because he felt that many of his own activities were his form of ritual, especially his playing of the keyboards. The music that he picked, the order in which he played them, the arrangements that he used, how he made it flow. That was the ritual that he shared with most of the people who visited with him. He would take them into that cold kitchen in 6114 California Street. And you'd be there at 3 or 4 or 5 in the morning. And you could hear the foghorns in the distance. And he'd sit down at that rank of synthesizers. And uh, he even had the foot pedal because he was an organist. So he could play with his feet as well as his hands. Mm -hmm. And he would summon up 
all kinds of emotions with the music that he played. Uh, he'd often pick uh, popular tunes from the past. But when I was there, he knows that my specialty is classical music. So he would often pick pieces that he knew I would love. He'd play things from Liszt and Berlioz and Beethoven and Wagner. And it was funny because we'd stay at the Black House and sometimes during the day, Dr. LeVay would be down there practicing the pieces that he'd play in our nightly ritual just so that he'd have them under his fingers if he hadn't played them in a long time. But that's how much he cared about it, that when he was involved in the actual performance, that it should flow, it should go and carry you on this, this stream of emotions created by chords and melodies and harmonies. And that was his most powerful form of regular ritualizing. That's fantastic. You did bring up a really interesting point there, and then that's that um, Anton LaVey would would practice so that when he was ready to perform, it was it was at his fingertips, as you said. It, it was ready to flow naturally. And I know that you had addressed this in your book, uh, The Satanic Scriptures, as well. Uh, speaking of uh, you know memorizing your lines if possible, so that it flows naturally, so that so that when you're in the ritual, you're not micromanaging the event. You're just letting it happen as it naturally would happen, as it naturally occurs, so that your mind is not there. You're just enveloped in the, the moment itself. Um, so to that, and, and I was going to be asking this in a little bit, do you find that when, when you do uh, practice, I'm sorry, when you do ritualize, do you tend to practice those a lot beforehand? Well, if there's something that's very specific, if it's got a lot of lines and there are motions and, and stage business, you know, essentially that you're going to be doing, it really is a good idea to treat it like it's a being in a play. Uh, you know, most people, I don't know if they do it these days. I'm an old codger at this point. I don't know if people <laughs> do plays in school anymore. But when I grew up, starting even in kindergarten, we did that stuff. People would learn lines. They'd, they'd perform. You'd take on a character. You'd do costumes. You'd do lighting. You'd make sets. And really, ritual is exactly that. When you're doing a greater magic ceremony ritual, it's got to be like the best theatrical experience that you can create in your home chamber. And it does take some effort to do it. Now, some people really aren't good at memorizing. And if that's the case, you'd get totally nervous and you'd blow your lines and you wouldn't be able to do the ritual. So it's always a good thing to be able to print out your ritual on paper and put it in sort of a book. You can get a, a loose leaf book or if you wanted to handwrite it in a big fancy, you know, grimoire kind of thing with a leather cover or whatever. But over the years, what we've usually done is have a big black binder and I'd print out rituals on parchment paper. I do them in nice fonts, but fonts that are large enough to read under the candlelight or whatever <laughs> lighting you're using. Because if you make them too small or you do them too elaborate, you know, you have some kind of ridiculously <laughs> over Gothic font, you'd be there. Well, what the hell is this I'm supposed to do? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So, you know, if you don't have it memorized, it really has to be readable. So uh, keep to those sans serif fonts, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, as a I'm, designer, <laughs> you know, Adam, that that's something that you really need to, to think about when you're, when you're doing something. Because it, it's got to be practical. I have a, a, a book that I've used really for decades now of all the different rights that I've done with different people. And I have them printed out that way. And I put the... the uh, stage directions in 
Oh, you know, sometimes what I'll do is is for the actual performance, it'll be different. When I create the ritual, I'll, I'll put in everything. Oh, as you've seen, when I my rites are in the uh, satanic scriptures, I'm very specific mm-hmm. about all the different things that happen, uh, so that people won't get confused. I want to make it as as clear as possible, so that there won't be questions. Because sometimes in the satanic Bible, doctor kind of flies through some basic things, and you kind of go. Well, wait a minute. How is that really supposed to go? And that's one of the questions that we get here at Central all the time. People will go through some of the steps and go, how are we really supposed to do that? And, uh, <laughs> and we go like, OK, well, you know, it's up to you. You can do it however feels good for you because it's all about your feelings. Uh, but, um, you know, I try to make it as specific as possible. But rehearsal is really important so that once you're, you ring that bell, you're not worried about what your lines are. If you've got them memorized, fine. If you don't, have a good printout. Even if you have them memorized, have a good printout. Uh, you know, when one conducts, and I've done that, you know, you can have the score memorized. It's, you know, a piece that you're really familiar with. You don't need the score, but sometimes it's worthwhile to have it there too, just in case you could get carried away and you might miss a spot. And again, ritual is so much about being enthralled by your emotions at the time, riding them like you're surfing some gigantic tidal wave. Uh, and that can can distract you at times. You don't know. There's sometimes in the ritual chamber, strange things happen to you that you didn't expect. I don't mean anything bizarre in a calling, appearing, or showing up. But, but just where your thoughts might go and where your feelings might go could distract you. So you kind of create ways of rolling with it so that you're prepared. But also not to freak out if you mistake thing, if you say a line wrong. Or if you mispronounce something that you tried to pronounce correctly, just keep going. That's always the most important idea with the ritual. Exactly. Yeah. That's that's one of the things that I would have people, uh, I used to have people write to me asking me, you know, about detailed questions about the exact pronunciation of, of <laughs> end or anything. And it, it's it's not that important, honestly. What's important is connecting to that leviathan within you and allowing it all to come out and if you make a mistake if you don't say something exactly right if you skip a step whatever just don't stumble over it just keep going you know almost act as if it didn't happen you know i meant uh, to do that (laughs) and move on (laughs) yeah well there's a really funny example of that when we were doing the ritual in the hellfire caves Uh, And I don't know how many people out there might know about that. And we have footage, which we may be releasing sometime soon. Uh, Oh, yeah. But uh, in the middle of the ritual, we had uh, a huge sculpted phallus that uh, had been made while everyone was there. And and we have also very fun pictures of the the craft process. (laughs) Made and painted and all of that. But in the middle of uh, that being shaken towards the cardinal compass points, it broke. And, a piece, oh. <laughs> and it flew across the room and crashed right into the gong. No. <laughs> so that was quite a moment. <laughs> but we didn't oh, let man. that stop anything. It was really, it was fun. We laughed. We smiled. And in the you know, lustful spirit of the moment, we, we kept on going and just had one of the most amazing rites I've ever experienced. <laughs> That's very, very cool. <laughs> well, I mean, just uh, I guess to wrap up this sort of introductory portion, um, what are the basic components? And uh, Magister Rose, if, if I could address this to you, what are the basic components that characterize a satanic ritual? 
I don't even think all of the elements that are, are listed there are actual requirements. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're helpful in creating that ritual space. But after you've done it a while, after you've had a few experiences, it's much easier to slip into that space. They're, they're tools to help you, uh, you know, make that intellectual decompression to, you know, I've characterized it in some of my writings in the past as, you know, when you go into the ritual chamber, if you think of the cardinal points of the, uh, of the princes, uh, Lucifer is the prince of the East and Lucifer traditionally is, uh, enlightenment. So he, he, he would be, uh, a symbol of like rational thought. And Leviathan is this dark, roiling beast of the emotions and the subconscious mind. And when you go into the ritual chamber and you are turning to that altar in the West, you are turning your back on Lucifer. You're turning your back on that intellectualizing. And these tools are just a, a means of doing that. And after you have done it a few times, it becomes easier for you to, to flip that switch. Whereas a lot of the problem with the, the newer Satanists is they are over-intellectualizing everything. They cannot turn off that intellectual uh, element, which in the, in the ordinary mundane world is a very good thing. But when you want to ritualize, it is an impediment. So that's why you get so many people who come into Satanism and say, Satanism is great except for ritual, which is all a bunch of bullshit, and why would you want to do that? Well, until you can make that break, you're never going to understand why you would want to do that, and I can't really explain to you why you would want to do that, because it's going to be something that is just completely outside of your, your thinking. So, you know, whatever you need to allow you to make that, you know, temporary break from the mundane. That's what you need for a satanic ritual. Now, some people need more things than others. Some people need that dark room. Some people need the gong. They need the altar. They need everything else. And other people, they can at some point just do it in their head. As you know, uh, I was saying earlier, it's just, uh, you know, it's rich, satanic ritual is all about what you need. And that is exactly, you know, what the tools are there for to get what you need and you use what you need. And, you know, you don't have to apologize for needing more tools than someone else. It's just, you know, the way you're wired. <laughs> <laughs> it, it forces us to to look at the structure and realize uh, that it, it's there for a reason so that if you need it to help you decompress, uh, to help you separate your intellect from the moment, that this can help you in these those sort of steps. But it's not mandatory. It's not 
it's not a requirement in order to successfully complete a ritual. Uh, my thought too, I, I, Michael really nailed it there about you, you have to use what you need because again, however you're hardwired or however you develop because your your proclivities change over time. Uh, for the person who's never done a ritual, uh, there's may, maybe a lot of people out there who haven't been part of religions where there are rituals or if they've been to them, they're boring and they think that uh, ritual is something that is useless for them. And we always suggest that uh, you kind of take it out for a test drive because the idea of doing it yourself, being the center of it, being the celebrant, uh, is something that a lot of folks may not have experienced, especially if they haven't done things like amateur theatricals, if they haven't been in plays or something, that uh, there is no self-consciousness in ritual in that sense, that you're not doing it in front of an audience. Like There is no Satan there watching you. You're your own audience. You're satisfying yourself with your performance. And so you have to be able to be comfortable with yourself and your abilities and uh, if you are not somebody who's used to it, it's actually often even more exciting for a person who's never done it before to give it a shot and see what it's like. Uh, it's definitely, as we've said before, not mandatory to being a Church of Satan member or a Satanist mm -hmm. to be doing formal ritual because uh, it's a tool. It's, it's not worship. It's not anything that's mandated. However, for the people who've never experienced something like that, it could be a very exciting thing to do. And, and I always advocate that people give it a shot. Just simply even trying, uh, if you've got your copy of the Satanic Bible there and turning the lights down low and maybe lighting a single black candle and reading some of the invocations and see how that makes you feel. Does it make you feel silly? Does it make you feel excited? Does it send a shiver up your spine and awaken part of your deeper mind that you haven't really accessed before? That's really where the proof of the pudding comes in. But you can find that, that ritual technique can really reach down and deal with aspects of your consciousness that you might not be accessing on a regular basis. Yeah. Wow. Well, we've already touched on this um, pretty heavily. This, this next question I was going to ask about uh, changing the ritual um, or ceremony. So I'm not going to really ask if it's okay, but I will ask... Um, Megas Gilmore, if what are considerations that you would think um, need or should or could be made uh, if you are going to be changing up an existing ritual? Well, an existing ritual is really created by somebody who had a good sense of drama and tried to put it together in a way that it should have maximum dramatic impact. But that's for the mind of the author of the ritual. Now, LaVeis created this structure for satanic ritual, which is essentially for us to become a kind of tradition. Now, a tradition is something that can be fun and can be supportive and sustaining, but it can also be something that could be a straitjacket for some people. So really, you have a lot of freedom uh, to, to play around with aspects. And the other thing, too, is that um, for wherever you are and whatever tools you have and whatever you're doing, you may omit things, you may add things. It's all up to you to get the experience that, you know, tra to traverse that emotional landscape you want to traverse, depending on the situation and what you're trying to do. Just another quick example from my own experience. We were at Mount St. Helens, and we were deep beneath the ground in a lava tube there. And a number of us together, we were all Satanists, and we, it was in the middle of the night. There was rain outside. The rain was actually creeping through the walls because they're porous. So deep beneath the earth in a place where this vast amount of natural destruction had taken place, we gathered in a circle 
each held each other's hand, so it was a ring of people, and we extinguished all lights. And the ritual then was amazing because it was in our minds, but in this location, it freed us to go in many different directions. In such a place of natural holocaust, destructive imagery was natural to this ritual. We approached releasing our feelings of wrath towards certain deserving individuals who had been hindering us here and there, among other things, because it was also a freeing feeling of, of almost transcending any kind of boundaries in such darkness deep beneath the earth. So in that kind of sense of utter darkness, this boundlessness, it was a freedom for us to do exactly what we needed to do. It was all by memory. We had no texts. So we spoke what we needed to speak. Enough of us had a, a whole bunch of you know, ritual material memorized. So that was part of it. Doing an invocation to Satan deep beneath the earth like that was very, very powerful. Uh, but much of it was really off the cuff and improvised. So you can always take that as your guide make it something that will work for you depending on the contexts that you're working with. Wow. That, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm still imagining being in that lava too, but like, that would be so cool. Um, and I think just, obviously, sort of in the moment experiences like that, they, they would just help you so much more get over if you had any hurdles uh, get over those hurdles and just be in that moment and I mean I remember as a young man we would always go up into the graveyard because it was so peaceful and beautiful and you know we could kind of just get away and going into a, a sort of uh, I mean you know at the time I was very much uh, sort of occult-minded, um, you know, sort of spiritual occult-minded. Um, I hadn't truly discovered Satanism at the moment. And so it, it was so much fun to put myself in this, as I perceived it, uh, spiritual or magical environment. And now I would just see it as an exotic environment that is so far removed from my day-to-day -day life that it inspires that part of my mind to open up, that embraces the the uh, theatricality of ritual. Um, and so I, I think that's a, actually a really good tip for anyone that, that maybe has a hurdle to get over. Remove yourself from your home or the sound of your neighbor blowing leaves down the road. Get yourself out of the city, or if you live out of the city, get in the city. Get into, change up your environment and allow that, that dramatic shift in your environment to inspire you and and you would be amazed at where it takes you and there's actually a question that we're going to be addressing from a, a listener about uh, sort of this almost exact situation uh, that we're speaking to now that i'm really excited to address in in this context before we do though i do have a lot of other things i want to try to touch on um we're getting relatively close to our time here so i want to make sure we can uh cover uh a bit more ground before we start addressing listener questions. So let me let me tackle these questions here quickly. Um, Magister Rose, obviously you've created your own ceremonies, your own rituals. Um, where would you suggest Satanists who are interested in doing the same look for inspiration? Um. I've always drawn inspiration from the most disparate sources. It's just <laughs> something I'll be reading and then something will click and 
uh, it'll be working away on a subconscious level and then emerge later, you know, as a, as an element of a ritual. And sometimes, you know, things will sit in my mind for, you know, months or even years and then suddenly it will all coalesce. It's just, you know, I've never really sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write a ritual <laughs> yeah. about this. <laughs> Or in this Homework frame assignment. of reference or using this imagery. It's always been something that emerged almost almost on its own. It's just something that comes forth uh, when you feel it. And that is an essential element about ritual. You know, you get these questions from people, do I have to do it on every third Saturday or something? No, you do it when you feel it. <laughs> And that's when you write it, when you feel it. And what you write is what you feel. And I mean, that's something, you know, I, I, it's very, it's a very personal thing with me. So I can't really, you know, see myself yeah. giving, you know, how to write a ritual. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> Step one. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that no, I, I, just, you know, turned out the most generic crap that would not appeal to anybody uh yeah but it's it's just you know you whatever inspires you whatever enhances the emotions that you want to make use of in this ritual mm -hmm. that's what you use so you know you, you take something that triggers an emotion you wrap that up and you work that into your ritual and that's you know that's the way that i would suggest to do it just whatever moves you use it whatever that might be some people are you know attracted to i mean say say you were interested in the hellfire club and you wanted to do a ritual wrapped around all of that imagery and that's you know something that would work very well for you Somebody else might look at that and go, eh. So it would be yeah. a completely useless thing for them. So, again, it's all very personal. It's all uh, – it's not, not one size fits all at all. I, I Even published rituals, I don't think I've ever done one without tweaking it in some way, shape, or form to my own desires or – interests of the moment so you know i've never felt uh, constrained by you know what was on the page i've always felt very free i mean to, to me the satanic rituals was not so much a book of these are things that i must do it's oh i can do things based on whatever the hell i want <laughs> yeah so i think that's a really good point and, and it could be the theme of this entire discussion is is it it's very personal and whatever whatever inspires you but i mean just to um put a fine point on what you were saying uh, about creating your own rituals uh, i think that's very good advice for any context of writing is that it it has to you have to speak from experience you have to speak from from within yourself you can't try to artificially create something that other people are going to connect with especially in the context of a ritual because it's not about them it's it's about you um 
Megas Gilmore, can I ask you, how far is too far in, in uh, changing or customizing ritual? <laughs> That's an interesting question because there's a whole aesthetic aspect to Satanism and it seems to be common amongst many of us that we enjoy this uh, some might call at this point, uh, they term it gothic. Uh, but mm. that's, to me, that's a late term for it because uh, we were doing it long before there was any kind of thing that was called goth was around. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, a kind of dark aesthetic, uh, you know, something as I think Dr. LeVay said would warm the heart of Barnabas Collins uh, would be a kind of an approach that we, we tend to find common among Satanists. But really, you could could do quite there's a lot of latitude there to play with uh i would say that you know if you if you're adding in jesus and angels and things like that <laughs> you know you kind of miss the point uh, but you know if you deal with things that stimulate you uh you can take that from almost anywhere uh, you know i have a godzilla based ritual Yes, okay. and uh, and eventually I might release that to people, uh, but uh, <laughs> you know I find and you know Lovecraft of course is is something that that uh, inspires people. His writings are are so wonderfully yeah. dark and and his concepts of of these uh, beings that are alien that they're so powerful that they're essentially godlike and how people deal with them. Uh, you know, most people feel this this cosmic fear that he evokes is really a powerful thing and and a great. Uh, part of, of stimulus for a lot of Satanists who have read his stuff. But Edgar Allan Poe, I mean, you could watch some Roger Corman movies that are loosely based on Poe stories and with the, the, you know, Vincent Price's incredible performances and the sets and the costumes and the music, like that could stimulate you to, to create a ritual based on that. You know, watch The Mask of the Red Death and you have Prince Prospero, who is essentially a Satanist and speaks some Satanism that's fairly close to ours in a monologue in there, which is pretty neat. Uh, and of course, the the look of of uh, the colors in the rooms that Poe created in his his original tale and that they realized in the film is something that I took to heart when I decorated the black house here that I live in. Uh, so you, you know, my house becomes a ritual. My life can be seen as a ritual, and that I live in this environment that is completely fantastical and, and something that I totally created um, using this structure that pre-existed but that looks like a house that the Adams family would be have fun in. So again, all these are aspects of ritual and the aesthetic does seem to be something that we have in common, this, this sort of dark side thing. But you could use something else. I mean, if you wanted to, to do something based on, say, Greek or Roman mythology, that wouldn't be Gothic at all. You know, you could be dealing with, with uh, ancient Greek myths, uh, the deities or the heroes in mythology that you find inspiration from. You could dress up in, in those kind of outfits if you like and uh, do something based on either whatever you know about the real history or from movies. Like take something that, that you find uh, totally excites you. You, know, you go watch 300 or something and see what happened with the Spartans and see if you want to do something with those. Uh, people do a lot of Norse rites, and that is certainly not Gothic. Uh, it's uh, another thing. And, and again, these days, everybody loves Thor and Loki because of the films that are out there. Yeah. And, and you could use those. Uh, they wouldn't be, again, 
something that would be typical, like spooky Satanism, uh, but they could be very effective as ritual. But I tend to think that the, the real dividing line would be turning it into something where you're supplicating to some kind of deity. You're begging for help. You're praying for forgiveness or salvation. I think when you take it in those directions, that's when you lose the point. Or there's some Eastern meditation that is very much uh, based on trying to dissolve your personality into something greater. And I think yeah. that would be taking it too far, too. The, the essence of Satanism is individualism, and we are our own gods. We are atheists. So if you keep that aspect to the ritual, aesthetically, I think you, you have a really broad range that you could play with. But if you start going beyond those kind of concepts into things that are really essentially part of spiritual religions, then I think you're dropping the ball and you're losing Satanism. You'll have leached the, the devil out of your rituals. Yeah, the focus always has to be on, on the self. Mm-hmm. Whether it's you personally or the, the the things that you care about, once you get beyond that, if you're doing it as an obligation to some other, or to as Peter was saying, to supplicate some other, then yeah, you're clearly <laughs> you're, you lost you're it. not doing a satanic ritual anymore. Yeah, no matter what you're invoking. <laughs> You said something there I want to kind of reiterate if I can, and that's even if it's a compassion ritual, it's someone that you intimately care for or you have chosen to love or to respect. So it, and yes, in some way, they are a part of the ritual, but it's, it's, it's inspired because of your passion for them, because of your care for them, your love for them. So even in that context, it's, it's solely about you and, and exactly. you getting that need to help in some way it's it's not this uh this this idiotic you know christian notion of pray for someone you don't give a shit about (laughs) pray for your enemy yeah (laughs) if i don't know someone why would i care about what they're going through (laughs) yeah exactly exactly they're not dear to me sorry you're on your own (laughs) just because another person exists doesn't mean you have to care for them and you cannot make that assumption it's just so it's such an absurd notion that that you would do that and and so you know to carry it forward to our discussion here the idea of of i, I don't know if, if anyone has ever even thought of it but it would be such an absurd thing to hire out a ritual to other people like oh i will perform this ritual for your friend if you want me to you have no connection to it it's so it doesn't make sense it wouldn't help anyone not even you like you would never well, do it that well it help you if you're getting paid to do it but <laughs> <laughs> there you go Well, you know, we get that email all the time. People contact us constantly and say, "Can you do a ritual to give Give me success. Can you know? Give me a ritual to make me better yeah. at something. And I have to always tell them, like, <laughs> you got the whole thing wrong, fool. You know, yeah. it's like it doesn't work that way. Unless you're doing it, it's going to have no effect. But again, these are people who really think that it's like spells. That if you say yes. the right <laughs> words and you summon up the demons, then the gates of hell will open and all of their desires will be realized. Oh, of yeah, course, that's they, just such yeah. nonsense. They think we're in good with Satan, and you know, if we say the right word, that you know, it's just a complete, you know, philosophical disconnect. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe they've written to the Pope and didn't get a response. And yeah. Like, no, <laughs> well, if, if Jesus like, won't do it, I'll go. They're to hedging me. their bets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's these. Well, let me let me turn this back um, specifically to the rituals. Uh, 
Megas Gilmore, you had already uh, talked about uh, how you know people could reach out to Norse mythology, for example. And you yourself have actually written Rite of Ragnarok, a, a ritual in, that is actually in the Satanic uh, scriptures. So where, um, obviously, Norse mythology, what, what inspired you to create this ritual? Well, part of it is that I think that there are interesting aspects of that mythology, and a lot of people are obsessed with it. They're following it, you know, doing historical research, trying to find out what happened to that paganism before it was, for the most part, shattered by the advent of Christianity and its aggressive tactics. But uh, I like some of the aspects of it. I, I like heroic mythology. I love Greek and Roman mythology, too. Mm -hmm. um, so with that one, I saw that there had been a lot of neo-paganism going on, which is trying to resurrect the idea of worshipping all of the, the, the Norse deities, trying in a certain aspect to capture what had gone before and had been wiped out. But I felt if I was involved in that culture at the time, I might want to be involved with the darker aspects of that mythology and not be the one who wants to build Valhalla, but I might be with Loki and the rest of the, the dark forces there to want to send it shattering in flame, crashing down, <sighs> destroy the Rainbow Bridge. You know, so when you get the point of Ragnarok, that's what happens. The Norse deities are, are wiped away, and at the end, we're left with a clean slate to, to clear things out and do something new again. So that aspect of their mythology is something that they saw as an end-of-the-world apocalypse. And I felt, well, why not be the sort of Satanist in the Norse pantheon being a Lokiist and saying, hey, let's go for him and all of you know, the wonderful, like, Surtur and, and all these great uh, aspects of, of their mythology that, that deal with, with dark forces and summon those up. And I think what's funny is that now that we've got these, these movies with Thor that, that they put out, that uh, people seem to like the actor who plays Loki so much that when they shot the most recent Thor The Dark World, they actually had to do extra scenes of him because he's so popular. And I think that, that the idea, uh, you know, I was a little in, uh, you know, in advance of the time by coming up with this right that's on the side of them rather than the rest of the goody goodies up in Asgard. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, I mean, what were some of the considerations you took when you were um, formulating the structure of this ritual? Well, I used the basic approach that, that Anton LaVey used because it, it is a tradition for us, as I said before. And I think it's an effective dramatic structure. So I, I basically draped these ideas around a typical ritual in the basic format that Anton LaVey came up with, but then played with it in ways to make it more appropriate for you know what was being approached, using aspects that I had seen other neo-pagan Norse people using, but putting them again to, to my purposes. So it wasn't meant to recreate any kind of specific pagan ritual. It was using the satanic format, but using this imagery. Mm -hmm. And so when you were putting it together, um, and, and am I correct in that you did have some theatrical background as a young man, correct? Oh, yeah. I'd <laughs> I've done a so, number of things. <laughs> is this something that... And, and we've already said that it's important, you know, on an established ritual to practice it. Is this something that you, you practiced a number of times and sort of tweaked it in, in or did, is this, was it all on the page that you were doing it? Well, I, I played with parts of it uh, before I, you know, I was, as I was putting it together, because again, 
for the folks who are familiar with it, musical aspect is kind of important. Uh, it, it really has to to keep the emotions rising. And uh, so I did work out and I tried it. I took it out for a spin and tweaked things here and there. Uh, so it was uh, like when you write music, you know, you, you hear it in your head, you put it down, then you play through it, you play it again, you change it, you revise. Uh, it's always an ongoing, uh, flexible process, uh, creativity. It's not something that you just, uh, yeah. I mean, one could, I think, just write a ritual that's completely abstract. Uh, you could do it all out of your head and put it down on paper. But often, unless you actually get it going and see what takes what time is often a very interesting and important aspect of a ritual. Because mm -hmm. uh, there have been rituals that people do where it sounds like this sounds good on the page. But if you start to do it, you kind of find, well, the focus is here, but there's a bunch of people here and they don't, they're not focused on that part. It's for somebody else. And so the idea of trying to engage everybody, especially when you're doing a group ritual, because that's another important thing. You can do a solitary ritual that's just meant to enthrall you and you can take whatever time you want. But when you have a bunch of people, you're responsible for keeping them engaged during the entire ritual. So you don't want people standing around being bored and losing focus. <laughs> so yeah. a, and a lot of times, unless you actually run through that, you might not be aware of, of those aspects that could crop up. So it's always important when doing group ritual to test it before you actually really invest the emotions into a, a full performance of the right. I, yeah, I, I mean, it's obviously it's it's so important for you to be able to reach that 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 place in a ritual um, in your mind. I I've actually run into that exactly what you're speaking to in a group context where everyone sort of in, in their own heads they're going to their own sort of different places, and then the structure dissolves because no one's focused on the collective experience. So that's definitely something to keep in mind because it can it can throw everyone for a loop when you're like, hey, pst, hey, <laughs> it's your cue. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let me ask you, uh, Magister Rose, with the rites of spring, where do, what inspired you to actually just put this down in paper and, and to to perform it and, and you know just create it in general? The rites of spring arose from a request. I know. Uh, Magister Lang here mm -hmm. in Canada was uh, in contact with a photojournalist at the time. And this person wanted to photograph a ritual. So he contacted me and asked if I was interested in, uh, in writing something. So I said, yeah, I would. And, uh, since it was going to be occurring in the spring, at the at the you know the beginning of spring, I thought, okay, this is you know something that that would be appropriate. And uh, the things that I was considering with it were, you know, because it was going to be photographed, I wanted things that would be, you know, interesting uh, to be in the pictures, mm -hmm. uh, which is where you know the nymphs came from. But uh, it just, uh, you know, it, it, it was something I was asked to do. And then the timing of it just sort of led itself in my mind to a spring ritual. Uh, I started thinking about, you know, spring. And I happened to come across the, uh, the hymn to Pan poem 
And I thought, okay, this is this is all right. I'll uh, I'll incorporate elements of this. And uh, one thing just sort of it, it sort of metastasized almost in my mind. Uh, and then I I wrote it all down and trimmed a bit here and added a bit there. Just uh, as, as you know, Peter was talking about to uh, to get the timing better. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I wanted to put something in there to create this uh, transition from the heaviness of winter to spring. And that's where the music shift came from, from a very, you know, heavy organ music it shifted to the stripper music (laughs) and i mean if anything you know creates this mental connotation of lust it should be stripper music yeah so you know that's that's sort of the genesis of that so when you were putting that together, was there ever a point where you're like, ah, is, should I put this in there? Is this too far? Or especially because it's you know something that's going to be photographed and the other people are going to be looking from the outside in to this um, you know sort of intimate experience of a ritual. Um, so were you ever just you know sort of second thinking whether you should do that or or maybe just because it was going to be photographed that 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 spurred you to include it? No, I mean. Uh... I mean, the nymphs originated with the idea of, okay, everybody likes to look at, uh, look at women. Mm-hmm. So, or at least I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we'll, we'll have some eye candy there, something for him to take pictures of. And, uh, but no, it, it never occurred to me that, uh, you know, this might be too far or this might be too much or, you know, I might be better off to tone it down it just it felt right when i finished it and i said okay we'll go with this and everyone uh everyone looked at it and they thought that it was uh it was good as well so you know everybody had a good time going with it that's really cool and and, uh megas gilmore you had uh mentioned about timing uh in ritual and including music and stuff and so i i thought it was really really interesting that in the rites of spring uh master rose you had added the stripper music to um sort of evoke those uh lustful emotions and and add some real color to the ritual and, and sort of you know bring it home um so to speak so is there ever a situation where you think well this music and I guess I'm asking this because uh, traditionally, I think everyone usually thinks of, you know, orchestral s- scores or, or classical music when it comes to ritual music, um, at least in my experience. So it, it, for, uh, well, I guess I'll start with you, Megas Gilmore. Do you think that there's any music that you could, n- uh, let me say it like this. Is there any music that you would never consider using in a ritual? Well, again, music is something that's 
of everybody's specific taste. Everybody has different sensitivities yeah. to music. <laughs> and uh, just to give a specific example, I, Michael did something brilliant with that one, using you know spooky organ music and going to the stripper music, and it's yeah. it's, it's really it carries it. Uh, we brainstormed a, a, a Magister Nemo and I years ago a, a right that we called. It was based on the idea of of you know mafia ideas. Uh, we had seen the Star Trek episode, a piece of the action, and in that one, an advanced culture. Well, it wasn't so advanced, but it was bright. It was a bright, <laughs> bright and imitative culture. A Starfleet vehicle had visited there, and they left behind a book about the mafia and organized crime on Earth. So when those people were, were gone, suddenly the the culture there looked at this and said, "Wow, this is this awesome mythology. Let's replicate it." So they they became like Chicago gangland culture they, they their entire culture was swept up with that and again that's a very magical thought just by itself uh, so we did a ritual that was uh, based on that that idea of, of sort of a piece of the action kind of ritual and and again the kind of music you'd want to use with that would be music that you'd say would would be appropriate for a gangster movie from that time period uh, so again it's it's whatever is germane to the setting of the right that you're doing but just aside from, you know, music is something, too, that can really uh, inhibit your ritual because music has a certain time flow to it. And yeah. if you get behind or ahead of the music that you've planned for it, you can really find your ritual kind of shifting gears in a very uncomfortable way. So one thing that I suggest to people who really haven't worked with this and got the theatricality of it and got the sense of the time that things take is to simply use something like recorded sounds of a thunderstorm behind your ritual. Because if you have a good speaker system, especially something that has a subwoofer, some good bass, if you, there are beautiful recordings of thunderstorms and rain that give you this wonderful way of isolating your chamber from the outside world and it's flexible, it's malleable, and it, it, it really is not something that is going to inhibit what you're doing. And often what's interesting with that is that sometimes there's some really wonderful coincidences with when the blasts of lightning go off as to what yeah. you're doing. So uh, music, again, the idea that music takes very specific amounts of time, it's in a tempo, it lasts for a specific duration. And if you have a ritual with all that cue to it, you, in, unless you've got it down so it works, then really it's often better not to use it. E you know, as much as you might like it, uh, it, can, it can screw up your ritual, just uh, basically. Wow. <laughs> I did not expect that. Wow. Um, uh, Magister Rose, is there any music that you would just say, you know, on the tip of my mind right now, hands off, I would never use? There's a lot of... Uh, wait. I can't really see myself using any kind of pop music or rock music. It just, for some reason, it doesn't work right. in, the, in that context with, with my mind. Even if it's something that I like, it's just, I, I don't know what it is. It just takes me out of it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, this is a another one of those questions that you know it's going to be, you know, just up to the individual. Yeah, just any again, it's anything that enhances the experience. Mm -hmm. 
is is good and fine. Uh, if you're doing a group ritual, you have to take everyone into consideration. So just because something enhances the experience for you does not necessarily mean it's going to work. But, uh, you know, whatever. It's, you know, there, there's no, you know, uh, there's no hard and fast laws about this. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, what works. <laughs> right. And, you know, if if someone can take a piece of pop music and uh, that inspires something and they can incorporate it into the ritual, then more power to them. That's, you know, that that's that's fine. It's just something I just don't think I could ever do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to say both of you, thank you so very much for your time. Um, we have hit our wall on what I was planning. Do you both have time to stick around and answer some listener questions? Sure. Sure. Oh, wonderful. Um, just before we do that, I do have a question. Um, do either of you, and, and Megas Gilmore, you did mention the Godzilla ritual, which I would love to get my eyes on. Um, have either of you planned on releasing or anything inspired you lately to create a new ritual or ceremony? Well, I, <laughs> I'm often playing with ideas for that. Uh, again, formal ritual for me is not something that I, I feel the need to do unless I really have something that I want to use as a, a kind of monumentalization of things. Uh, because I do feel with, again, the way I do music and, and listen to music or play music, that that often for me, like it was for Doctor, is, is my ritualizing. Um, so... Uh, but I've got I've got notes for a bunch of different fun things, but uh, I will leave that until I'm marketing my next book, and then I'll <laughs> let people know more specifically. Nice. And uh, Magister Rose, do you have anything in mind? Oh, I've got a few things, sort of, you know, elements that have not quite coalesced yet, uh, but it's not a priority. I don't. I don't do that many uh, formal rituals anymore. Mm. <laughs> uh, so it's not something that uh, that is being called for like that much in my existence. But uh, I've got a few things that are percolating away and may at some point be committed to paper. Uh, Very nice. say never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, uh, there's something for everyone to look forward to. Uh, let me just say really quick, for the listeners, if you want to check out the Rites of Spring ritual that uh, Magister Rose created, you can go to churchofsatan.com. Um, it is available there. You can search for it or just use your navigation and uh, check out um, uh, sort of the Great Minds section of Theory and Practice. And the Satanic Scriptures is available as we speak and if you're going to pick it up I do highly recommend everyone picks it up and that would be uh, in in this specific conversation the Rite of Ragnarok ritual but the entire book is well worth it you can go to amazon.com but I would suggest clicking through churchofsatan.com first for it and actually um, Infernalia is also available still as well and that I believe you can still try to get it on Amazon but also through Lulu is that correct uh, Magister Rose? Lulu yes you can definitely uh, go through the Church of Satan site to get it there. In, uh, Wonderful. I oh, definitely recommend both of them for everyone. Just another quick aside that if when people get the satanic scriptures, they're also getting the satanic uh, wedding and funeral rites. 
And those were things that I composed uh, basically before I put the book together. But I refined when that was coming out because I intended for those to create traditions for us with have people have those rituals in hand. And they're not necessarily going to function as rituals depending on what your emotional experience is. They can be your ritual, whether it's a funeral or a wedding, depending on what emotions are there. But they're more ceremonial in that they're trying to illustrate principles and ideas of satanic thinking and philosophy in dealing with these, these very pivot points in your life. So those were, were calculated in a sense uh, to, to create a new tradition so that Satanists can use them. And they have been. I, I know. I mean, we've, we've, I've done the Satanic funeral actually at a funeral uh, number of instances. But there was a really interesting one where uh, a, a member who was a biker had died. And his family contacted us and said we, he really wanted a satanic funeral. And there was a non-denominational chapel in lower Manhattan. And we did that right there uh, with all of his relatives. Uh, his motorcycle was shined up out on the, the uh, riderless bike, was right there in front of the funeral home, beautifully black and oh, nice. chrome. And then he painted. So his artwork was set up inside. He was dressed in satanic finery, leather, and his Baphomet sigil or his throat. And uh, he even had some some sort of makeup that was uh, reminiscent of King Diamond because uh, that was oh, some, well. somebody he admired. So he used that as that was part of his his, his funeral look. So uh, we did the right there. It was very successful. Everybody was quite moved. And uh, and of course, the wedding rite has been done a number of times in, in a bunch of different circumstances. So uh, those are also flexible uh, and uh, they're meant to, to, to create, a, again, a groundwork for people to use to adapt for their own needs. And that's why they were put out in that book. Oh, that's fantastic. I had run across those and um, is it, it one of those things where I, it, it was a conversation I had with my wife saying, you know, I would really love to reaffirm our vows at some point and do it through the satanic wedding. And uh, she seemed open to it. So that is something that I'm, I'm very much looking forward to um, when the time is right for us. Let's let's turn this conversation to our listeners. So I reached out to them uh, weeks ahead of this conversation and asked if uh, anyone had any specific questions about customizing or creating their own rituals. And I got a number of uh, really wonderful questions here. Some of these are a little long-winded, so I'm going to attempt to distill them down. But um, I'm going to leave it open. So if either of you have something to say about it, uh, just chime in and we'll just sort of let this uh, flow organically here. So let's start here with the first, of course. Um, this gentleman notes that he conducted rituals uh, before he identified as a Satanist. And um, he's primarily a solitary practitioner because of uh, poor experiences he's had in the past. Um, he has taken group rituals and sort of uh, refined them to be solo rituals. And there was one that he had a question about here um, that he had trouble with, I suppose. And this was uh, Lair Apes. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. The right of stifling air. And so his question is, uh, how would you suggest I modify that for solitary practice? Just off the top of my head on that, that really isn't something that's going to function for solitary practice. Yeah, There's, I was, I was yeah. thinking about that as well. It's, it's, that one is not really doable. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you, got, you need some people for that. That's, see, when you look at the book, The Satanic Rituals, those are fully intended as group rituals 
Dr. Levy didn't intend those to be solitary rituals. Uh, you, you can work with some of them. Uh, the, the Yazidi rites are very meditative. You can do that uh, with them, but something like that, and also Le Mestre Noir is, is really also not intended to be solitary. One could do a solitary personal mess noir it, to, to try to work Christianity out of yourself. But the composition of those rituals were meant to be something reinforced by having a bunch of people there, you know, call and response from the celebrant to the, the you know, folks uh, there participating in this, that they actually need to have some kind of energy and give and take. So I would say instead of trying to adapt that, if you like the atmosphere of the history involved in there, create something personal based on that. Yeah, that's actually a really good suggestion too. Um, this question, it, it like reminded me of, of, of someone who, and I'm not suggesting that this questioner is this way, but it, it reminded me of someone who is sort of checking the box. Like, I've done this ritual, I've done this ritual, okay, I've got to do this one, you know, I, I don't have a group to do it, I've got to, you know, it, and there, it, that's a very manufactured way of looking at things. And it's really not the way I would ever approach rituals at all either. So, you know, there are some rituals that I would love to participate in, but just because, you know, the ritual itself has more people, you know, it requires more people to, to conduct, I'll just set it aside until, you know, if the opportunity arises, then I'll take it. But I'm not going to go out of my way to try to rewrite something just so that I can do it when it's not something that that I need to do, you know, I mean, that's the way I see rituals is something that I, I, I have to do in order to either uh, celebrate or get out of my system. Yeah, it's not, there's no bucket list here. For yeah, rituals. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you, you've got to do things that are going to be emotionally moving. And the thing is, if, if somebody reads the satanic rituals and, and really likes some of them and feels that, you know, the homage to Chort is is got this great sort of Russian night on Bald Mountain thing going on in it. And you might want to do something like that. But if you don't have a, a, some people to assist you with it, you really could – you'd have to really rewrite them. Uh, they, they are really meant to be uh, a form of, of, of common affirming together. The idea of massed voices shouting things and all of that is, is, is important in a lot of the rites in that book. So – uh, yeah, you know, either play with them drastically changing them for your own needs or just move on uh, to something else. You know, maybe you'll find people who you can work with in ritual. See, that's the other thing, too, is that group ritual is really wonderful. But because ritual is very personal, if you have people in the chamber who aren't with the program, that's going to make it not work. It really has to be not a performer and an audience in a satanic ritual, everybody is the performer. There is no audience. So that if everybody has other things on their minds, you know, if, 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 if as you were saying before when you were talking about certain ritual that you had done, people's minds were wandering off to this and they were missing yeah. their cue. <laughs> and and that, that, that really, you, you can't have people in there who are doing that. Uh, that's just not going to make it work. It's going to be a total waste of your time because everybody's going to deflate at one point or another. The, the emotions are just going to go, rah, rah, rah. it didn't work. <laughs> well, I, as, as I was saying earlier, uh, when I looked at the satanic rituals, it was, you know, just an experience of, oh, you know, I can riff off of anything. And, you know, that's, you know, if that ritual 
is speaking to you, then what is it about it that is speaking to you? And try and isolate that and then riff off of that in your own way, as Peter was saying. It's, uh, you know, the... And yeah, you can modify things, but, you know, there's a difference between modifying something and completely <laughs> tearing it apart and building something else. <laughs> I think that's – you touched on something that's really, really important for, in my opinion, anything that has to do with ritual. And that's – you have to have a concept that you're trying to express. Um with with a ceremony, you know, whatever that concept is, if you can create the structure of a ritual around that concept to reinforce it, all the better. But to to take an existing ritual or ceremony, deconstruct it so that you can perform it as an individual and lose the concept in the process, then what's the point of the ritual of that, you know, then? You always have to pay off that concept with your performance, with the structure of the ritual. So whenever you're, as, as uh, Master Rose just said, whenever you're uh, sort of riffing off of established rituals or just creating your own, isolate that concept. And whatever you do has to pay it off. Build upon it. Don't strip it away. Um, let's do the second one here. I think this is a really interesting one. I, and to be fair, I like this because I feel like these these episodes inspire people, and this question uh, suggests that it did. So, um, uh, ultimately, the question is, uh, what ceremony or ceremonies would we suggest for a loving couple, or uh, what inspirations would suggest to draw uh, from in creating a new ritual for two individuals? Uh, more specifically, I understand the Ragnarok represents out with the old and in with the new. I think that's very much in keeping with what we want to achieve. And so this is a, a couple that has not in the past even thought about performing rituals, um, but they've sort of warmed up to the idea over time. Um, so do either of you have any suggestions? I wouldn't suggest that they do a group ritual to begin with. I would suggest that each do individual rituals until they become comfortable with the idea. He says a recent convert to the idea. So they're not, they're not really clear with it yet. Mm -hmm. So if they both jump in the deep end with both feet, they're liable to drown. <laughs> So it, it's probably not going to go well. So I think they need to do things individually, ritually speaking, for a while until they're comfortable with the concepts. Mm -hmm. And then once they know how to do that, then they can consider what they both want and work on something together for that. But, I mean, if you're not really comfortable with the idea, doing it as a group ritual, which can be tricky at the best of times, is probably mm -hmm. not the best. Uh, I mean, it's not what they want to hear, probably. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, it's interesting because it's if these are people who haven't ritualized before. And so it's like somebody approaching a piano and starting to learn chopsticks and then they want to take the list piano sonata and do it for beginners, which isn't going to work. So (laughs) you you essentially have to get a sense of ritual. Now, the the basic ones in the Satanic Bible are, are very simple. You could do a compassion ritual together. It could be a loving couple. And you could have the give and take, you know, they could even exchange the celebrant roles because they are working together. They could, uh, you know, reinforce each other. So it's not one person being the celebrant doing all the the monologue really like that. It could be a dialogue. You could rework a basic ritual and get comfortable with the idea of being in a ritual chamber and and doing sort of proclamations and the kind of stylized verbiage that you use in a ritual. If you haven't ritualized before, that's an odd thing to get used to. And again, mm-hmm. if they've been in plays together or separately and they're used to theater, they they might have an advantage. It might get them into it. But again, ritual is not theater specifically. It's ritual. And it's meant to be something that you're involved in, not as, again, as I said before, an audience and a performer. So I think a, a loving couple is a great basis to start with. And I, th- I would suggest for them to basically take, say, the compassion ritual uh, and work with that, uh, you know, for, for maybe somebody that they both care for or for each other. That would mm-hmm. probably even be the better way to start. Do a compassion ritual for each other's goals and sh- share the lines, go back and forth uh, from section to section. And I think that could really get their feet wet and make them feel comfortable with working with that. And then in time, they can climb the summit of doing something far more complicated, like anything from the Satanic Rituals or the Rite of Ragnarok. And then at that point, they might have more people that they know who they feel comfortable with, because again, that's important. Uh, And just a quick aside here. A lot of people join the Church of Satan and are quickly going, okay, how do I attend a ritual? (laughs) <laughs> and that that's yeah, yeah. it's it's always the first thing like well where do you meet where are the services and what they, <laughs> they, they I, we get this every day and the, the point is they miss the point that <laughs> we don't do rote you know it's not the weekly you know on sunday we all pray it's yeah. like oh yes on the dark of the moon we all summon up lucifer uh no uh ritual, <laughs> ritual has to be something that's dealing with your emotional needs so it's done as needed. If you like the idea of creating a tradition of doing some sort of ritual, you could pick, I, I, and I've described that in the Satanic Scriptures, you could say, okay, the dark of the moon or the full moon, if you want to do something monthly, or if you really want to do something weekly, you know, I, which I think to, I would say is probably wearing it out, uh, you know, pick a night of the week that you like or something that works with your work schedule. But essentially ritual should be something that is indulged in when it suits your needs. So we don't do these group meetings in buildings set up for this purpose because a ritual chamber, if you have one, is supposed to be utterly personalized. It has to have the aesthetics that you resonate with. It's Mm -hmm. not like a cookie cutter because, again, people ask us like, well, where do I get this and where do I get that? And it's not like there's the Acme, (laughs) you know, know, if you look back to the roadrunner, Acme ritual, satanic ritual chamber. Yes. You know, it's like they expect to like open the box and like there's the Baphomet and there's the black curtains. It's all inflatable. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or, you know, just add water and it all appears. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. 
So, so you know, that whole concept is not what we're after. Like a ritual chamber, your tools have to be very personal. They have to have significance to you. you know, when you hold that chalice, it has to not be just something that you bought because, you know, somebody had it in a catalog and said, it's a satanic chalice. It has to be something that, that you hold in your hand and, and it feels like it means something to you. You have to imbue it with significance. And that works for the whole ritual process, that every aspect to it should be something that has meaning to you and to the participants. So in time, when you start doing ritual and you get used to the idea, when you meet people who you are comfortable with and who share your ideas and your feelings and emotions, those are the people you might eventually invite to be participants in a ritual. Because again, it's not like, you know, you're going to set up like these warehouse churches that they do and everybody shows up and somebody's playing the piano and somebody's preaching at them. That's not what we do. It's, it's so anti the concept of Satanism. Uh, so again, there aren't services. You can't go attend them. Rituals for you, you make it happen. And when you share it with other people, it's an intimacy that's being shared. And that's of crucial importance to remember. And that's really, really great. I, I do want to touch on another point that that wasn't fully explored that I think is pretty important. Um, so Magister Rose said that um, you need to understand individually ritual uh, within yourself, that it is such a, a personal thing. And because this question is wrapped up so much in the idea of a loving couple, I, I do want to stress this idea here. And that is that um, it is fantastic that you two have found each other and that you have such a wonderful connection. And, uh, you know, not everyone has the opportunity to do that. Um, not everyone can find someone that they resonate so clearly with. Um, but it is important to understand, especially as a Satanist, that we are individuals and that your your experience of, of living is very much a personal one, and it can be enhanced by connecting it with someone else. But do not lose the sense of yourself in the context of a couple. You know, you see this with people where they wear matching t-shirts and they're, they feel lost and alone if they're not with their significant other. And at that point, you're not a person. You're not an individual if you need that other person. It's wonderful having them around. I love my wife with all of my heart, but she is not who I am. We together create something really special for us, but we are not necessary to each other. We could, like if one of us passes away, I hope it doesn't happen, but if it does, we can still move on. And when you're thinking about this in the context of a ritual, you don't need each other. And I, and I do think, as Magister Rose said, it is important that you understand how you feel because what you don't want to do is end up in a situation where you have to have both of you together in order to ritualize like what if someone's on a vacation and something happens that you just you have to get this out of your system and then you just have to put it on ice until your partner gets here because you've never done it alone and you don't know how it works you have to be able to experience life on your own terms and then Enhance it with that other person you've chosen to be with or, or other people, you know, depending. Anyway, I just, I just wanted to put that out there because I, I really don't want people connect. Like, I have to have this music playing or else I can't ritualize. I have to use this one sword or I have to wear this one robe or I have to be with this other person. It's not about that. It is about you and your experience and you needing to do it. Um, 
All right, sorry. I'll get off my soapbox there. <laughs> uh, let's let's move to the next question now that we're five hours in. <laughs> um, okay, so this one's a little bit uh, interesting, a little colorful here. Am I better off to use the... Okay, so let me set this up. Um, so this individual has found a, a perfect place for their ritual, uh, except... <laughs> There's traffic and there's light and there's sound, uh, no matter whether it's day or night. So uh, the question is, are they better off to use the site in daylight when traffic is less noticeable uh, and distracting? Or should they try to do it at night when their emotions are more in tune, even though there's visual distractions? Well, you know, the whole point that he, this fellow is mentioning, or a fellow gal is mentioning distractions, means that that's going to be a problem for a ritual because a ritual means no distractions. You have to be laser focused on what you want to do. And again, trying to do something in a public place is very iffy. Uh, and really, it depends on what they mean by ritualizing. You know, you could wear headphones, and, and as I think they mentioned in their question, to, to block out the outside sound. But are they going to be like waving a sword around? Are they going to be, you know, in an outfit? You know, what are they going to do? You could go to a beautiful sea cliff and have the waves come crashing in. There might be kids playing on the beach who'd be noisy, and you could put your headphones on uh, and to b b drown that out so your emotions would swell from the amazing natural setting from it. But you'd probably be doing something a little simpler and more meditative, especially if you're in a public space and somebody might come across what you're doing. You don't want to be, you know, doing, you know, spinning around and ringing a bell and all of that while people are wandering by. So if, if the ritual is more than just experiencing the place and getting a rush from, from the, the, the setting of, of, you know, however, whatever the setting is, uh, you kind of have to maybe not do it if it's going to be witnessed by other people. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I was going to say. Because <laughs> <laughs> here comes somebody flouncing along in a cape, waving a sword in the air, and it's like, <laughs> somebody's going to call the police. <laughs> And oh yeah, they, they, yeah. And, you're, and you're not going to hear Officer Malone behind you saying, "Excuse me, sir." Uh, you know, while you've got your 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 you know earbuds in there and you're you're you know tripping the light fantastic while you're summoning up Cthulhu at the edge of the ocean. So yeah, uh, yeah it's yeah. kind of a recipe for disaster, perhaps. I would just keep in mind that 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 place that you found that's uh, really emotionally charged for you, that traffic is part of that environment. You can't. You can't seg segment it out, you know? I mean, unless you're a movie set and you can, like, put up barricades so that no one will come and bother you. But um, I, be careful, man, because nowadays I'm I'm convinced that, that police officers shoot before they examine. And in a situation, depending on where you live regionally or throughout the world, I don't know where you're from, um, this could be a real problem if someone just stumbles across you. I mean, seriously. So, you know, you just uh, yeah, do a little uh, do a little homework. Well, here's another <laughs> thought, too. If, if there's something about the setting that is really inspiring, you could shoot video in the setting and then, oh, yeah. you know, cut a little video together with and add your own soundtrack and then play it on your widescreen TV if you've got one or, you know, project it, you know, however, whatever kind of visual presentation methods you have, you could do that in your own chamber. 
take aspects of that natural setting that you find inspirational. You could take a bunch of stills and, you know, everybody's computer these days usually has some kind of music or slideshow or movie editing software. So you could put something together, which brings in your creativity, which is important for Satanists. And it would be something that you have control over. You can use in your own chamber. You can bring aspects because you were there. You shot it. It's part of you. You have a connection to it. And that could be a, a, a really fun way of adding these things into your ritual chamber at home, uh, bringing the outside world into it for you. It's a really good suggestion. I like that. Um, all right. So let's let's do this next one. I think this is really interesting because I, <laughs> I, no matter how many times uh, on this show throughout the years we've talked about Enochian keys, there's always still questions about them. Um, so here's the question in its entirety. Am I better off to leave out Enochian keys in personalized rituals if I don't understand them? If I don't know what is being referred to by angles or angels or pillars, does it add to or take away from the ritual to mask this confusion with Enochian chanting like some priests of old, turning his back on the congregation to enchant uh, with Latin phrases? Can it help to not know what it means, or should newbies leave out the keys? <laughs> you know, just quickly, the keys were really used by Anton LaVey as a sort of prop to add spookiness to the ritual. They, they're not something that you have to use. Uh, he found a lot of stimulation from them. He, he essentially took these things that were from Western ceremonial magicians and deviled them up somewhat. So uh, <laughs> they're already adulterated in a sense. <laughs> and, he, you know, he s explains how you can pron pronounce Enochian. And we even have a piece that he wrote on the website that gives some pronunciation guides. And in the Satanic Bible, he gives you English translations so you can ignore the Enochian language, which can sound sort of ridiculous to some people. It might be silly. But other people get off on that. They want it to sound exotic and bizarre. And that's the whole point. They're props. So if you, if you, if it, clearly this guy isn't getting that feeling from it, uh, so that he feels that they're stumbling blocks, then just don't use them until they add to the ritual and make it exciting and stimulating, then forego them. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, my take on it as well. Although sometimes I think that the reason people stumble over the Enochian key so much is that they're still over intellectualizing a little too much and they're not allowing themselves to get swept up into the ritual. They're thinking about oh, this sounds silly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, you know, again, it's, you, it's a tool, but if it doesn't add to your experience, you don't need to use it. But there's also the question of, is it detracting from the experience just because it's not something that appeals to me? Or is it something that I'm, overthinking when I shouldn't be thinking that way, mm -hmm. you know? So the problem may be the keys. It may not be the keys. It may be that person's frame of mind is being the problem right now. So that's a good point. Yeah. I've never, I've, I've never had a problem with the Enochian keys because there is an English translation but I've always liked, you know, when I think of um, Catholic rituals, for example, their, their ceremonies, I like the Latin in it. I, I think it 
it makes it more exotic. You know, I, well, I think it that's kind creates of creates the ritual space. Yeah. And, and just like you were saying early in this discussion where, you know, following a, a ritual step by step, it helps, it helps you get to that place in your mind where you need to get to. If, you know, just as both of you have said, if Enochian keys are a hurdle, then, you know, you need to get to that place. Obviously, if you're going to, you know, wanting to perform a ritual, drop them, as everyone here has said. So I think Michael- I dig them, though. I- well, Michael made a good point too. The, the idea that you, to over intellectualize them, they are imagistic. And if you try to look at every phrase in there and try to parse it out intellectually as to what exactly does that really mean, okay. then you're, you're not seeing them for what they are. Uh, they're, they're set dressing essentially for your ritual. And you, you pick the ones that have the right moods and resonances for whatever particular thing that you're going for. And, and Doctor even points those out in that essay that we have published on the, the website. But uh, you really have to not worry about that kind of, of aspect to your ritual that, uh, as Michael says, don't overthink it, that you kind of have to, to, to ride with the, the, the mood and the feelings of it. And if you don't do that, you're, you're missing the whole point. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, this last question that we're going to cover today is – Man, there's so much in this. I'm, I'm going to read the entire question because I, I feel like we have to in order to fully address it here, uh, especially for the sake of the audience listening. Um, like an author developing characters to one day appear in a novel, I've been developing characters all my life in my head. Some are fully formed, age, weight, favorite foods, childhood traumas, talents, etc. I call upon them in ritual, but they do not easily fit into the domains of earth, air, fire, and water. These god characters weren't originally conceived of as antagonists and don't readily fit in with the supernaturality of the rest of the infernal names. If one of my god characters is not a Satanist, but he does bring about an emotional charge, what's the best way to build a ritual around him? That's certainly an interesting concept, but I'm wondering about how these people work in this person's head. Like, are they seen as, are they fragments of, of, of personality that are being uh, sort of hived off into different characters? Really, the only way one could answer that is to understand how those characters really work in the psyche of the person who's wanting to use them. Because mm-hmm. that, that's certainly a unique approach to things. But as we've said before, all, when you look at the infernal names, they're all fictional. That's why yeah. you can you could stick Godzilla in there, or you could yeah. s- stick anything else. You could you know who are some whatever other supervillains that are out there. You could stick in there. You could have Lex Luthor on the list if you liked. So the idea that it doesn't match the you know the supernaturality meaning like I guess the, he's thinking of like they're traditionally demonic on some level that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. They don't have to, as long as they have an aspect to you that you find stimulating work with it and run with it but you'd have to really figure out what that is and how it works into this sort of pantheon of characters that are being created and since we don't know them and we don't know this person it would be pretty hard to address that more specifically yeah i mean just as peter said just treat them as any other infernal name it's you know none of them are are real uh it's not like Baphomet's going to be offended if you're using <laughs> yeah. uh, this other character. I got replaced by Will. <laughs> but, you know, if, if it creates the, you know, emotional energy that you need in the ritual, then 
you know, that's fine. Uh, I would certainly not expect uh, to use them in a group ritual because <laughs> everyone else will yeah. be, uh, what the hell is he going on about? Yeah, he's Charlie. <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, I'd love but to if, hear if that. If it works for you, then it, it works for you, and there's no, uh, there's no reason not to. I wondered what the names of some of these characters are. That would be a, a, an interesting yeah, I, thing, because like this is kind of this very skeletal presentation of a, yeah, of a concept. It, there's, there's not a lot to work with here. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe I'll reach out to the the questioner, and I'll have to find it in my email, and and ask them some more questions, some follow up. This is a very it, like it feels like a loaded question to me like as if someone were were trying to uh, sort of reach out for help about something deeper than the question suggests well and you know i don't know how do i deal with the voices in my head yeah like, <laughs> yeah think, yeah it kind of comes across that way well and also what's interesting too i'm looking at the text of the question here where they're fully formed age weight favorite foods childhood traumas so they, they seem to be you know human beings but then he calls mm -hmm. them god characters so like do your gods have childhood traumas and have favorite foods like that's an interesting way of dealing with your gods you're making them very human which of course is something the greeks did their gods are very much that mm -hmm, way yeah. uh, but uh like really what are they you know maybe write a novel with them like or, or a short story like have them interact in a way that that brings them like don't worry about whether it's air fire earth or water you know deal with them in, in a situation that's going to bring uh the result that that this person is looking for like i'd actually think that because he's thinking of it in very much a way as a writer would create fictional characters then Keep going with that. Create the fiction. Write a story, perhaps, that is a ritual so that the results that happen in the story are what you are seeking in your ritual. That might be something useful. That's That would be really cool, yeah. All right. Well, so, gentlemen. Well, I wanted to say one more quick thing. Oh, like, okay. And I, it kind of I lost the thread there before when we were talking about it. We were talking about other rituals from other religions. And we mm -hmm. think about it. The Enochian is something, as Michael said, like the Latin in uh, Christian ritual had been. And when the Catholic Church decided to, in the 60s, humanize their ritual by dropping the Latin and actually forbidding, forbidding it completely, um, they, the, the Tridentine Mass that was in Latin was then performed by sort of fringe Catholics uh, because they liked the mystery and the majesty that that exoticism gave them. Uh, the idea of the priest facing the altar, not facing the people, reaching up to their savior, that symbolism was cast out. They had in the, the new mass, the priest was facing the congregation and uh, they often had guitars and had folk masses. They tried to make it, you know, to the people like more pop kind of music, no more scary organ music, no more incense. That went away. You know, they had a little tinkling bell ringing instead of like a bigger, you know, booming sound. They really took most of the magic that was part of the old ceremony. And it had magic because of its tradition. It was time honored. It's something that people have been doing for over a thousand years. And to suddenly make it sound like a bunch of hippies, you know, dancing around with flowers in their hair kind of ruined it for a lot of people. But that was the mandate that came out. And I think that drove a lot of people away from Catholicism to finding some other way of getting a satisfactory right to experience. So Satanism too has to keep that in mind. The idea of you can have exoticism in your ritual and it should give you this kind of stimulation, this this excitement when you go there. It should be time out of time. It shouldn't be 
this boring, mundane, just like, you know, you're taking your socks off to watch TV. You know, it, it really should be something that has a special frame of mind evoked in you. So don't necessarily use things that are in your daily regular life in ritual. It should have something that removes you from whatever you're going through every day. And that's the excite, exciting part of ritual. The, that's the, the exoticism of it. You know, but the, again, Catholics and Christians stole ritual ideas from the pagans that preceded them. And almost every religion lifts things from the ones that were the practices from the ones before them. So mm -hmm. we're no different. We're, we're here to, to find what works. What Satanists do, though, is we try to figure out why ritual works for us, examine those elements, and then use them to our best advantage. Wonderful. Well, I, I think that's a, a wonderful way to close this discussion. Um, thank you both so much, so very much. I, I really appreciate, actually, you know, so much of your time. Um, I know the audience really appreciates it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hope in the future you are both absolutely welcome to come on the show again and, and talk about whatever you would like. Uh, I, I truly did enjoy our conversation. Likewise. It's been a pleasure. Well, until we can meet again and speak again, uh, hail Satan. Hail Satan. Before we go, I would like to thank you, the audience, for your interaction and enthusiasm. It's your fuel that drives this podcast, and without you, Nine Cents would not exist. I would also like to remind you to pick up and read both The Satanic Scriptures by Peter H. Gilmore and Infernalia by Michael Rose. Both are linked off churchofsatan.com, and links will be included in the show notes. Lastly, I would like to thank Reverend Bill M. This entire series of Greater Magic episodes started because of a seed he planted in my head. Chris X, for his permission to use excerpts of the Satanic Mass, also linked through churchofsatan.com to purchase, and the administration of the Church of Satan itself. I am inspired by your representation and continually impressed by your passions. Hail Satan, happy Halloween, and good night. Shemham for us. Shemham for us. Hail Satan. Hail Satan.